Hi, this is Arthur Gordon of the Good Trash Media Network and the cast who knew too much, and you're listening to the Faculty of Horror. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And we are back and we are talking about one of the most personal, one of the most complicated subjects anyone can really talk about, and that is mothers. Yeah, it's something that just about everyone has maybe something at least to think about on the subject. Whether you are a mother or not, everyone has a mother. And when we think about mothers, there's a real duality. Before we even get into these crazy, intense movies we're going to talk about, we already experience a lot of duality with motherhood. There is a motherhood that is presented to us through books and TV and film, and often it's a very caring, supportive, maternal figure. It's not something that's all that complicated, generally speaking. But talk to almost anyone you know, and there is some deep complexities into the relationships with both of their parents, often particularly the mothers, because they are seen to be more present, for lack of a better term, even if that's not the case. And in addition to the topic of motherhood, which is a fantastic topic that I think we've been dying to talk about, we almost had to wait for the right films to come along. And these films, they're different, they're similar, but they both made quite a splash within horror. They both got tongues wagging for their respective strengths and weaknesses, and we're going to get into all of that today. We had to wait for the right movies and the right time for them both to be readily available for you guys to all do your homework. I will say, if you haven't already figured it out, and I think we have mentioned this in the podcast before, neither Andrea nor I have children. It's not something we particularly dying to do. I'm kind of on the fence about it. But it's a weird thing. I turned 30 last year. And from that moment, my doctor became really concerned about the fact that if I was going to have children or not, not in a weird way, he would just kind of kept saying to me, well, if you think you're eventually going to have kids, and I was like, I don't know, doctor. And he was like, okay, well, even if there's a possibility, you should start taking these vitamins, because your body is like decomposing and your eggs are getting worse and all of that stuff, which starts happening in your late 20s as a woman. And really, they say it's only great to have kids up until the age of 35. And after 35, you can still do it. But there are a lot of complications that come with it. And I'm like, fuck, I, I still have so much I want to do. I don't know if I can have kids. And having kids is a really complicated idea for me because my two half-sisters both had kids quite young. So I feel very, very aware of the kind of stuff you give up when you have kids. Obviously, you gain a lot, but it's a big part of myself that I feel like I would have to give up. And I've been thinking a lot about kids recently because two of my best friends, they're a couple, they just got married, and they're about to have their first baby. My friend is due in July. They're super excited. They've been wanting and trying for kids, and it clicked and it worked. And I am actually surprised by how excited I am for this little guy to come out. And they found out they were having a boy. And I think he's going to be so much fun. If he's anything like his parents, he's going to be a cool little dude. But I just think now watching these movies, like my friend is a lovely blonde woman who's having a son. And I'm like, what is wrong with that child? So you didn't tell us, like, are you, are you taking those vitamins? I'm not. But I still have this sticky note where he wrote it down for me by my desk. Bad mommy. Bad potential mommy. 
I'm a little bit older than Alex, but I am in a relationship. And it, when you're in a relationship at this age, you kind of have to have that talk, at least a preliminary of that talk, just so that you're not hurtling toward an inevitable messy, messy breakup because there are expectations that were implied and undiscussed that weren't met. So it's a conversation that we've had and we all seem to be okay with the fact that I've got a whole lot of things to do and none of them revolve around another human being to take care of. I'm lucky if I get out the door with both my shoes on, to be quite honest. But I do have two sisters who have tons of kids. They're banging out kids left and right. There's no shortage of children in my life to spoil and to care about and to watch grow up. And, you know, eventually I'll be the creepy tattooed aunt who shows them how to do keg stands. And that's great. And I can't wait. But suffice it to say, obviously, it's something that's very present, I think, in every woman's life. It's, you know, this ability, this wonderful gift. And too often in our culture, we are reduced to the fact that we have this wonderful gift. And if we're not using it or not using it properly or squandering it, there are judgments about that that we have to come face to face with. For myself, you know, I think I had a pregnancy scare maybe a year ago and I was like, oh my God, a teen pregnancy. My mother would be shattered. So, needless to say, I hope you get a sense of us heading into this conversation with our own complicated feelings about motherhood. We think it's awesome, we're not sure if it's for us, but it's a huge part of being a woman, and I think if you go for it, there's a lot of support in hopefully your community or your family or your friends for these babies. And if you don't, there seems to be a little bit of suspicion around not having kids. But we are here today to talk about actual mothers. And we've we've seen some pretty crazy films in the last few years dealing with this complicated feeling around motherhood. And I think it stems from these ideas that Andrea and I are talking about as contemporary modern women that we face. So we're going to kick it off with Jennifer Kent's The Babadook. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. Babadook-duck-duck. He wants to scare you first. Then you'll see it. This monster thing has got to stop. You can't get rid of the pepper dog. Duke is a story about Amelia and her son Sam. Amelia is a widow and a single mom working in a nursing home. 
Her six-year-old son Samuel is what you might call a difficult child. He's hyperactive, he's loud, he's stubborn, he's obsessed with building weapons and performing magic tricks and being obsessed with monsters in his room at night and the trouble he gets into at school, he can't give his mom peace for a minute. In fact, things get so bad at school that Amelia has to take him out and figure out how to deal with him full time. And one night, Samuel pulls out a new book from his shelf called Mr. Babadook, a hardcover pop-up book with a blank red cover. Now, the story describes a monster called the Babadook, or actually, more technically, I think it's the Babadook, I suppose, because it's supposed to rhyme with book, and he's going to come knocking on your door, duck, 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 whatever. The story describes a monster called the Babadook who will come knocking at your door and will consume you if you let him in. And the story quickly turns dark and it scares the shit out of Sam and he becomes obsessed with the idea of the Babadook stalking him. And it actually bothers Amelia quite a bit too. So things go from bad to worse. Weird stuff starts happening in the house. Amelia finds glass in her food and nasty bugs crawling out of the walls. She's got childcare services on her ass for taking Sam out of school, and it's readily apparent that Amelia is in over her head. Things culminate when Sam has a seizure and Amelia begs her doctor to prescribe them sedatives. Even more troublesome, Amelia can't seem to get rid of the goddamn Babadook book. She throws it out, she rips it up, she even burns it, but it keeps reappearing in a newfangled second edition with horrible images of her murdering their dog, her son, and herself, a new text about how the harder she tries to deny the Babadook, the stronger he becomes. She tries going to the police, but of course, they think she's out of her mind. And she's more than halfway there at this point, after she hallucinates an encounter with her dead husband asking her to bring him the boy. She succumbs to the Babadook completely and snaps their dog's neck. Now, she comes after Sam, but he's wily. He uses a bunch of those weapons Amelia had forbidden him to play with on her, and he's able to help her expel the Babadook from her body. In an epilogue, we see that Amelia and Sam have largely recovered from the experience. The Babadook still lives in the basement, but they feed it a bowl of earthworms to keep it at bay. The end. So between The Babadook and the next film we're going to talk about, Goodnight Mommy, there are so many parallels. And there's a lot of stuff we're going to talk about in this film that will apply almost in a mirror-like effect, like it's in reverse when we talk about the next film. But to talk about Jennifer Kent's The Babadook, it initially started as a short film that Jennifer Kent made, which is online. We will link it in the episode notes. It's incredibly similar to The Babadook, obviously much shorter in length. It's around 10 minutes long. It's very creepy. It's very weird. And there's some really great stuff in that short. It's very successful on a lot of levels. Now, one of the things that I don't think you can escape when talking about either of these films, and in particular The Babadook, is the notion of the unreliable narrator and the notion of who is looking and who the camera is situated with throughout the film. At the beginning of the film, we we see Amelia, who seems like a nice woman. She seems a little frazzled. She seems worn thin, but she seems like she's really, really trying. And her son Sam is very hyperactive as Andrea already mentioned, but it's her kid. She's got to look after her kid and she's got to try to maintain her temper. And there are several scenes with Amelia's sister and Amelia's sister's friends where Amelia is made to feel less than as a woman, as a mother, as a provider. 
we are so deeply situated in this that when Sam comes to her and is talking about the Babadook not only existing in a book, but as a real presence, we're already kind of exhausted of him just being in Amelia's mindset, like, really, another thing I have to worry about? And I think the film does a really interesting job of pulling you towards that sheer frustration that Amelia has. And then when it consumes her so fully and so deeply, the film has to switch to essentially Samuel's viewpoint. And at that point, once Amelia is able to reject the Babadook, she and Sam really start seeing eye to eye. They they are playing on the same team once again, so to speak. That's right. That transition is so seamless and so perfect. I can guarantee you, if you have a soul, the first half hour of this film, you want to kill Sam yourself. You're like, just step aside, Amelia. I got this. This kid is so irritating. And for me, he really tapped into each and every one of my anxieties about parenthood. If you wonder if you've got what it takes to be a parent in the best of scenarios, let's say you have a loving husband, let's say you've got tons of in-laws and friends nearby and you've got friends who are having kids that they can play with and we've got this huge house and we've got heaps of money, best case scenario, shit can go bad. And here's Amelia who is just in dire straits and you don't envy her situation at all. That's one of my favorite things about the Babadook is that it tackles motherhood in a way that it's not all sunshine and roses. And you even get the sense that if Oscar were still in the picture, this kid would be a very challenging one. And Jennifer Kent herself, Rumorg Magazine had the Babadook on the cover of it when it first came out. And so I read the interview and Kent said, it's a very taboo subject to say that motherhood is anything but a perfect experience for women. And I read that before I saw the film and I see that sense sentiment resound throughout the film in numerous ways. I thought it was very interesting because postpartum blues are common, but postpartum depression has only become medicalized. It's only entered the common lexicon more recently in society as that stigma slowly lifted. The thing that I'm saying about Brooke is that there's misinformation, okay, and she doesn't understand the history of psychiatry. She, she doesn't understand in the same way that you don't understand it, man. But a little bit what you're saying, Tom, is you say you want people to do well, but you want them to do well by taking the road that you approve of, as opposed to a road that may work for them. No. No, I'm not. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the Babadook, and I believe the general consensus about the film, from watching it, from thinking about it, from talking about it to other horror fans, and from almost everything online, it seems to come down to the fact that the Babadook, the monster, is a physical manifestation or metaphor for Amelia's own depressive episodes, for her own anxiety, for everything that she fears. It is manifested in this tangible thing, in this magical realism world. Now, it's very hard to get across depression in film. One of the other films I think of a lot when I think of depression on film is Lars von Trier's Melancholia. And that is this operatic, beautiful, weird movie. And in a sense, you have to externalize the depression to make it a relatable and visual metaphor. So I think the idea of this Mr. Babadook, who's a kind of pseudo-German expressionist monster, a male monster, who is impinging himself on this little duo of this little team that is desperately fighting to stay together. Even when Amelia, like, really hates Sam, when she seems angry, she knows she can't do anything. She doesn't want to hit 
him. She doesn't want to yell at him too much, but you can see her breaking. And the fact that there is this kind of like old world male presence looming in on them feels deeply cinematic. And I, I think it's an interesting way to get that metaphor across. Part of the discourse of motherhood is that it's a very natural thing. It's a really magical thing. Like even as a woman of 34 years of age, when I talk to people who are parents, they're like, you couldn't possibly understand. You couldn't possibly understand the joy and the closeness and the bond and the love and the unconditional love. When you hear this enough, honestly, you're just, it sounds a little bit condescending. Like I'm missing out on this huge experience and I will never be complete unless I let my reproductive skills free, which is admittedly maybe one of the reasons I've got my back up against it, is if you tell me that I shouldn't do something, I'm going to do it and vice versa. But the nature discourse about motherhood is this thing has lived inside you for nine months. It's a very special, unique bond, blah, blah, blah. But women do kill their children. And I'm not just talking about abortion. I'm talking about infanticide. Now, the definition of infanticide is killing a child under 12 months of age. And interestingly, women are much more likely to commit it than men. And I think we have a weird preconceived notion of child murder. There seems to be a kind of sensationalized story around it. I feel like I remember my mom watching something on like Oprah or Donahue when I was a kid about a parent killing their child. And it's it's one of those, you know, 60 minutes tantalizing story. And obviously, you know, some of these kids are older, but, you know, you have women like Casey Anthony and even the JonBenet Ramsey case. There There seems to be a lot of panic and a lot of anger surrounding the death of a perfectly healthy child. It seems totally counterintuitive to everything our species is taught and bred to do. Well, that's right. And, and another rule that's held to very steadfast as a species is that mothers love their children. And your father might walk out on you, you know, historically in the 18th and 19th century, it wasn't that uncommon for women to kill their bastard children that their biological father had denied or wouldn't acknowledge because they couldn't support it. So there was a very realistic basis to this. Now, in some societies, it was even considered permissible for the purposes of population control. And obviously, the biggest example of that is China with the one-child policy, which was in place between 1978 and 1980 and began to be formally phased out in 2015. Now, in China, there is a very traditional preference to have boys, so much so that with this one-child policy, if you had a girl, you might be allowed to have a second child if you had a girl, because they'd be like, ah, tough luck, man. We'll give you one more shot. Killing off your baby girls was illegal, but even still, 100 million missing girls in China are likely due to infanticide or abandonment. And then there was the sex-selective abortions, which were also common until they were outlawed in 2005. Chinese have a preference for boys, and that has produced a gender imbalance across the country. Here in Hainan, island-wide, there are 130 men for every 100 women, and in some places, the ratio is as bad as 170 to 100. Now, on this side of the pond, we've got the more sensationalized stories like Alex is talking about. We've got Lindsay Lowe in Hendersonville who killed her twins immediately after giving birth to them to hide her pregnancy from her own parents. Megan Huntsman of Utah killed six of her newborn children over the course of seven years. Like, these women are monsters to us. The media picks them up and rips them apart, and everybody clucks their tongue and says, how could they? What kind of mother? What kind of woman? It's as if it's against nature, when it's clearly not. 
what was the most horrifying to me over the course, like I'm researching infanticide, obviously there's going to be some horrifying shit, but what was scariest to me is that in both Canada and the U.S., infanticide by a mother is actually dealt with less harshly than homicide would be because it's assumed that women emerge from childbirth a little bit cray-cray due to lactation, of all things, believe it or not. In Canada, the legal definition is if she killed her child, quote, while not fully recovered from the effects of giving birth to the child and by reason thereof or of the effect of lactation consequent on the birth of her child, her mind is then disturbed. I shit you not, it's an insanity plea. So basically, it's just being a woman doing the exact thing you were always taught to do. You have just rendered yourself as the crazy woman stereotype. That's right. It's either natural or it's crazy. Because for women, it's natural to be crazy. And it natural? That's crazy. Oh, God. I'm so sad now. <laughs> There's no question she murdered her children one by one, drowning them all in the family bathtub, locking the door so the five children couldn't get out of the house waiting until her husband left to avoid detection, fighting to hold each one of the children under the water. The children's bodies bruised, struggling to live. So how was Andrea Yates found not guilty? So obviously in this film, Amelia does not commit infanticide. But as soon as we meet her, there is an immediate tension. And as the film progresses, particularly in the scenes with Amelia and her sister, who seems to be probably more well-off, married better, obviously her husband's probably still alive, has more money, has more friends, has a real social network around her and is really doing the stereotypical mom thing. And there are several conversations throughout the film between these two sisters where Amelia's sister really seems to be judging her quite harshly. And it starts as a conversation that they don't want to have Samuel's birthday with his cousin. That feels awkward. That feels weird. She doesn't want a joint party with Sam this year. Oh. Mom! Mom! She wants to have a princess party. Mom! And in the end, it is ultimately the decision for Sam to have his own birthday on the day he was born, which was a huge step forward and an acknowledgement that Samuel's father passed on the day he was born. He got killed driving Mum to the hospital to have me. There's three external avenues that Amelia is offered support with varying degrees of success. I mean, there's Claire, Amelia's sister, as Alex just mentioned, and she's supportive-ish. I feel like she seems unsympathetic in what we've seen of her in this film, but I also know that she's been dealing with Sam being a pain in the ass for six years. She's been dealing with Amelia being a mess for six years, and it's really tough to support someone with depression. And I think that's entered the discourse more recently, the discourse around depression, that it's a real disease, that it's debilitating, that it's hard to pull yourself out of. But there's now some kind of recognition that depression also hurts people around you because of the stigma. People don't know the right things to say. They don't know the right things to do. And ultimately, treatment is largely up to the sufferer, which is perhaps why the disease is so persistent and pervasive. Then there's a guy that Amelia works with named Robbie, who seems to be a romantic interest, but shit gets kind of weird when he catches her in the Sam is sick lie and nothing really comes of it. Hey, lady. This is for you. 
My mum always got me a model plane when I was sick. I'm not sick. I was personally quite relieved that he didn't show up at the end of the film because I totally expected him to. When there was an epilogue of mother and son being happy and having the birthday party, I so expected him to be there and being like, yeah, put her there, son, and there's the happy nuclear family resolved at last. But that didn't happen, and I was so grateful. Thank you, Jennifer Kent. Yeah, I think with that ending, which is just Sam and Amelia and their older neighbor coming over to celebrate and maybe some other people just have a quiet, not huge birthday celebration, but a birthday celebration. And I think it offers the idea that you can create your own family. Not each family is the same. That doesn't mean they're not all worthy and equal and amazing, but you can have these quote-unquote fractured groups that if they take care of themselves, if they fight to take care of each other, as these two do, it's more powerful than having a father in the picture, having two mothers in the picture, however you want to lay it out. Well, that's absolutely right. Like the third avenue of support I was going to get into is the lady next door, Mrs. Roach, who is not related to Amelia. She has zero obligation to give any fucks about this brat and his psycho mom next door and what's going on over there. But in the end, she's actually the most helpful because she is the one to recognize the time of crisis and she says the right things when she goes to check up on them. I know... This time of year is terribly hard for you. And I know you don't want me to go on about it, so I won't. I just wanted you to know that I'd do anything for you and Sam. I love you both. She didn't give up when Amelia told her off, and she didn't walk away when Amelia wouldn't let her in. And she's also the person that the Babadook seems to target. If we're talking about the Babadook as a monstrous figure in this film, there's that really creepy scene. For me, it was the most effective scare of the film when Amelia is washing the dishes and looking up and down, and she sees the Babadook appear behind Mrs. Roach as she's watching television. So there is a sense that Mrs. Roach is so effective, even though she's suffering from a debilitating disease, I believe it's Parkinson's, and she's still trying, she's still connecting with these two people, who are maybe as lost and lonely as she is, but she is seeking that connection as well. And the fact that the Babadook shows up through Amelia's eyes in Mrs. Roach's home is the sense that Mrs. Roach is encroaching and actually trying to help and being that effective, helpful figure in their home. Now, I'd also like to mention that while the Babadook is very much about grief and depression and repression, and if I could identify the biggest flaw of the film is that perhaps that's a little too on the nose, a little too obvious, but there's also a theme in this film about resentment, which is what occurs when expectations aren't met. Now, we talked about the breakdown of the nuclear family and the American dream in previous episodes, and indeed, this isn't the happy family Amelia wanted, and it's considerably harder to start over when you have a physical reminder of your dead husband, and that horrible day is in your face once a year, particularly tainting his birthday. But I found it very interesting that Amelia had to ditch her career as a writer in favor of something more stable to be a single mom. And ironically, she wound up in perhaps the single most depressing job I can think of. Five billion. Anyone got five billion? 
maybe not. I guess it depends on your outlook. But for someone like Amelia who is feeling trapped and feeling like her life is all just hurtling toward this terrible game of bingo, she's in a position where she always has to put others first, which just saps her ability to take on a nurturing role. And that was also actually my favorite little Easter egg. I saw The Babadook when it first came out, and obviously I watched it again in preparation for this podcast, but I hadn't picked up on her former career as a writer and as a writer of children's books until later. And like I had suspected after the first watch, I was like, maybe there's some part of her that keeps bringing The Babadook book back in. Maybe that's part of it, or maybe that's a supernatural element. I'm okay either way. But between her admission that she had been a writer of children's books prior and the ink on her hands when she goes to the police station. That only recently came together for me, and I was so satisfied by it. Yeah, and I mean, if you rearrange the letters of Babadook, it's a bad book. But what I thought was very interesting, and I've seen this film a few times now, something I picked up on in my subsequent rewatches is the fact that, and I've seen this debated online, but this is my take, is the Babadook only really really starts showing up in that fearsome presence when Amelia, you know, pulls out the trusty old vibrator and is going to town and about to climax and then Sam runs in having had a bad dream. Ah! It's in my brain! What is it? It's a dog! Oh no. And through the few times I've watched it since, it's that moment where it's like it breaks. You know, she's clung to so much. She's given up so much of herself. She's laid it bare. She's trying to make it work. She's doing all this stuff. And she just wants to get off because she watched kind of a sexy movie on the TV and is just like, yeah, I'm going to go to town. And to just have that moment, that private moment interrupted and, you know, female sexuality, female masturbation, females desiring sex, as we've mentioned already in this podcast, it's seemingly very, very taboo in popular culture and mainstream culture. So this kind of seems like her last bastion. This was like the hill she died on and it pushed her too far. Now, Jennifer Kent had initially wanted to make this film black and white like her short, but her cinematographer actually convinced her to use color. And the entire thing is saturated in these cold hues with lots and lots of blue. And I especially love that when Amelia's really starting to spiral the drain, she's always wearing like a pink sundress with a dark jacket over it. And again, it's a little bit too on the nose, but it kind of gives it a fairy tale quality. I also loved the expressionist sequences that she sees on TV. I love Melier, I love trick photography, and I love how the aesthetic worked itself into the film as well as the book, the Mr. Babadook book, which is actually in production. If you were among the lucky ones who contributed to the Kickstarter, after the movie came out, everyone's like, I want this book for realsies because it's really cool Tim Burton-y, sketchy, scratchy art. And I believe they're shipping out this year. But most of all, I love it because in 2014, I feel like I was ready for a dark psychological horror film to come along, and I love movies about fucked up moms because I feel like it's one of the last taboos. I'm hoping that we approach children in horror in another episode soon. We did it a long time ago, but since then, there have been movies that have pushed the boundaries even further. I'm talking about movies like Cub, but indeed, the next movie we're going to look at also pushes the boundaries of what children are capable of, what we can push child actors to do in a movie, and 
how it makes us feel. Most of all, I feel like this film was so refreshing for showing depression the way it did, as honestly as it did. And just as I mentioned, with postpartum depression becoming more and more talked about, we see these effects in film as well. And I read an article on Slate that I'll actually link to in the course notes about how crazy moms have increasingly been treated with more sympathy in recent years than before. And one example that they made in the article was actually Margaret White in the Carrie remake, which if you listen to our show, you know how we feel about that. And it didn't sway my opinion that that movie is a warm, wet piece of shit. But it pointed out that the opening sequence of the remake shows a terrified Margaret White giving birth and not knowing what's happening to her, whereas the original was all about Carrie's terrifying ordeal in the school shower. And that was just an indication of an effort to kind of humanize Margaret White a little bit, which I thought was really interesting. And as a feminist, I think probing into the perspective of a mom, even if she's a sick mom or a sad mom or a crazy evil psycho mom, is really interesting and exciting. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of women on the cusp of motherhood, or they have fully embraced motherhood to whatever degree they choose to in horror films. Now, this is, you know, everyone from Rosemary and Rosemary's Baby, who is dealing with the kind of traumatic, terrifying effects of pregnancy, as we've talked about in that episode. And then even in a film like Carrie, as we talked about Brian De Palma's original way back in our first year, Margaret White in the original film which is still one of my favorite films, she's very much cast as like the kind of evil queen. And in The Babadook, I think Jennifer Kent does a really good job at complicating the role of mother. Amelia is neither the princess nor the queen. She is somewhere deeply, deeply in the middle. And I think that middle is the fact that real women aren't princesses or queens. We're who we fucking are. And I feel like, you know, you're kind of always oscillating between that virgin whore dichotomy. But then when you become a mother, you're basically asexual. The only time you have sex is to pop out another kid. No, no, no. So our next film is by two filmmakers, Veronica Franz and Severin Fiala. And it's an Austrian film called Goodnight Mommy. Now, this is the English translation. Originally, it was titled I See, I See. This is a really creepy film. It's a really weird film. And I am really, really excited that we get to talk about it. Bitte komm zurück, Mama. Ich lasse ganz, 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 ganz viel.
After undergoing surgery on her face, Elias and Lucas's mother returns to their home in rural Austria. The twin boys are weary of their mother, who seems out of sorts, distant, prone to anger, and not at all like herself. The boys believe that this new mother is an impersonator and set out to figure out who she is and where their real mother is. The boys confront her and even attempt to run away, only to be caught and brought back home. One night, after the mother goes to sleep, the boys tie her to her bed and begin to torture her, burning her skin and supergluing her mouth shut. She briefly escapes only to be caught by one of the booby traps the boys set. When she wakes up again, she is now superglued to the floor of the living room. She pleads with Elias to let her go, saying that she'll play along, that Lucas is still alive. She says that Lucas's death is not Elias's fault, and that they should go on and try to be a normal family. Elias asks his mother to tell him what Lucas is doing, which his real mother would know. Now, in the film, Lucas, or the apparition of Lucas, is holding a candle to a curtain, about to light it on fire. The mother, of course, cannot answer, so Elias walks over and puts the candle to the curtain, and the house is engulfed in flames. The final image of the film is the boys standing happily and eerily with their mother, supposedly their real mother, as the firefighters attempt to quell the flames of their home. So, this movie is a hard watch, but if you've followed my writing on other outlets, you will know that I put it as my number one favorite horror film of 2015 for the list I did for Shock Till You Drop. Now, again, we are very lucky to live in Toronto where we have all these amazing cinemas and we've got the Toronto International Film Festival, which has year-round programming, and they actually programmed Goodnight Mommy to play in one of their big cinemas. So myself, Andrea, and one of our dear friends and colleagues, Alison Lang, all went to see this film together. We had a girls' night out and we went to do it. And God damn it, by the time that final torture scene happened, I swear to God, guys, it was like the monkeys, like, hear no evil, speak no evil, see no evil. Andrea, uh, I think you had your hands over your mouth. I remember Allison had her hands over her ears. I was covering my eyes and we were just like squirming and like going crazy in our seats. It was just so much to handle. And it wasn't a packed crowd. It was quite sparsely filled out in that cinema, but I could feel like this weird tension emerging in the cinema and it was so beautiful and terrifying and I knew that we were going to do this on the podcast. I think I actually walked out of that screening with you guys and said we should do Babadook and Goodnight Mommy. I knew I would eventually rewatch it. I wanted to and I rewatched it this week for this episode and it is I think possibly even more fucked up the second time you see it because of all the things you know that are about to fall into place. That's right. There's a ton of stuff we could pull out of this film. There's a ton of stuff that has been pulled out of this film, and some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. This is the kind of film that we are going to tell you to watch as homework prior because there's sort of a spoiler in it. But as we're going to get into, I don't feel like this movie packs the M. Night Shyamalan twist ending. When we talk about twist endings and spoilers, this is something that if you saw it coming, it doesn't matter. If this is your second, third, or hundredth time watching it, it doesn't matter. There's something in there that you're going to find that you didn't see before. Now, Goodnight Mommy was, it was actually inspired by the two directors seeing a German TV show about women who were getting paid to get plastic surgery. 
and they'd be isolated from their families while they recovered. And of course, you know, reality TV, the show built up to this big reveal and the directors saw that the children showed unease with the big reveal. And it inspired them to come up with this story about what if a child really didn't recognize their mother? Now, that was the germ of the idea of this film. And once again, I read about this film in Rue Morgue. It was covered before I got to see it. And in the interest of not having spoilers before the movies even fucking come out, obviously Rue Morgue didn't say, P.S. Lucas is dead. It was very careful and crafty, and it focused on the children's fear that this woman might not be their mother, which is such an intriguing concept, but it's only a tiny little part of the puzzle. As regards the two filmmakers, Franz had an art house film background, and Fiala is a horror nut who already made two horror shorts. So Goodnight Mommy is really their love child, and to me, it's a near-perfect film. It works so beautifully. Yeah, I think it's a film that works even better the second and I'm sure third, fourth, fifth time you see it. And this is a film I really do intend on going back to and parsing out and looking at. And I remember watching it in the theater and being like, oh, that kid's dead. One of the kids is dead. He's dead. You did, eh? You got it right away? Right away. The second that Elias is like, where's Lucas's breakfast? And the mother says something like, you know why Lucas's breakfast isn't here. I was like, oh, that kid's probably dead. And then I waited a couple scenes to see if something would trigger and I would have been presumptuous. But nope, nope. It just kind of kept on. And the thing is, as Andrea said, even for me, figuring that out in that first scene where it's kind of hinted at, it's not detrimental to the film. It doesn't take away from everything that comes before because really the story is about an adult versus two children. And the two filmmakers have been very vocal about the way that the first, you know, two thirds of the film is shot very much from the child's perspective. Again, we're talking about the unreliable narrator figure. You know, it's shot with a lot of stark lighting. There's a lot of the cameras looking up a lot. And the framing always seems a little off. And it presents this kind of surreal, beautiful, but very strange world. And then in the final third of the film, once the mother wakes up and she's tied to the bed, she's giving, you know, these reasonable explanations and the children will not hear her. It becomes a lot more realistic, a lot more to the point in terms of shooting. It's a lot more standard. It's interesting that a film can eschew all their stylish qualities, go back to a kind of realism and be even more terrifying. Usually it's the opposite. See, for myself, there's lots of talk about the twist, as I mentioned before, but I don't like to think of it as a twist, really. We've all been through The Sixth Sense, The Machinist, High Tension, Fight Club, the list goes on and on. And I think a lot of Western audiences saw that reveal coming and thought that they had figured it out. And this was so obvious. My God, the twist is so obvious. But for myself, I did suspect that Lucas wasn't there Although for a little while, I actually entertained the idea that Lucas was perhaps responsible for an accident that claimed their father's life, which also mutilated their mother's face. I thought it was possible that the mother was a horrible person to the extent that she was holding a grudge against one of her sons and is splitting them into a Cain and Abel typology. But what's interesting to me is that insofar as I had these suspicions, when one of them was confirmed, it didn't take anything away from the story at all. I noted the same narrative shift that Alex mentions where the first two-thirds are filmed in these shadowy, fantasy-like aesthetics, whereas when it gets to the ugly stuff, 
we're seeing that in documentary style realism to the point that we're not really prepared for it. For the first while, you're like, is this a horror film or are these two kids being abused? Because that sucks. Well, and it's super fucked up the way that super glue factors into this film. And it's very much not necessarily a kid product, but it's something kids can get their hands on very easily if they're into models, if they're into building things. It does come with toy sets. It does exist in a lot of households. And the fact that it gets so far so quickly, it's very disconcerting. It's very disorienting. And it goes from the moment that you think this unknowable adult female figure is a monster to like, oh, God, please let her go. And I remember the moment. It's the sound design. It's the shooting. It's the way all of these moments lead up to when she makes that break from when she's tied to the bed and she runs and the tripwire hits her and her face just smacks and that cut. And it's so upsetting. I saw it in a theater. I saw it alone by myself in my home on my computer. And I was just like, ah, ah, ordered some mouth guards online. So similarly to The Babadook, the germ of this film was an idea to subvert a cliché, in this case to subvert the cliché of children being oh so innocent. And it's simultaneously uncomfortable to watch emotionally, and then when the horror ramps up toward the end, it just has you squirming in your seat. Also, like the Babadook, there are elements of repression for sure. You have the mother saying things like, you know, I can't play along anymore. I did for a little while because it was easier and it was like a break that she felt needed to happen that didn't go well. And at the end, she just begged, you know, I'll, I'll play along again. But at that point, it was way too late. You get the idea that this mom is really trying to move on between the plastic surgery, the dating site video, not cooking anymore. She's stopped doing all of the things that Elias has come to expect mommy to do, which is why her recovery was so confusing for him. Not that he's quite right in the head either. And I loved how that was handled in the film where you're so sympathetic to these boys and then that's weird they collect beetles why are they doing that with that cat that's kind of where there's a shift there was like a cog in my brain that turned that is like oh no no nothing is what it seems and I think these two films are such amazing kind of sibling films in a lot of ways between The Babadook and Goodnight Mommy. For me, the big difference is in The Babadook, it's about Amelia learning how to be a mother, learning how to be Sam's mother and learning what that means to her. And in this film, the mother, she seems to be attempting to assert her own identity once again. She's not trying to necessarily be the best mom in the world. She is going through plastic surgery. She's going on the dating site. She's doing all this stuff to assert her own identity again, to not be subsumed by these kids and her, you know, role in their lives. So to me, it's it's such a fucked up scary ending that in order to fight for your own identity as she does in Goodnight Mommy, it means her death. It means that she didn't acclimate. She didn't conform in the way that they wanted her to. So she had to be killed. It's actually really interesting that we are supposed to sympathize with somebody who would get plastic surgery and like, oh, she should be taking care of her children. Like there's so many cliches and rules of nature that this film subverts. And in Goodnight Mommy, it's a very small film, a bit more so, I would say, than The Babadook. It really does all take place in this house and in rural Austria. 
and there's a lot of green around there. And I loved the completely opposite worlds that this film inhabits. It inhabits the beautiful, clean, modern, luxury home, which the mother, when she arrives home, says, you cannot play, you cannot have animals, you cannot make too much noise, I need to rest. I need to recover from this thing that I did for myself that was not necessary. So the home becomes a terrifying place. It becomes a place of absurdity, of paranoia, of fear, of monitoring. Monitoring is huge in this film. They use the baby monitors. They stick one under her bed to keep tabs on her. And even when she tries to break into their room and gets really mad that they put a lock on or that they're using the lock. And then the flip side of that is the natural world that these boys inhabit. And everything we're taught through film, through experience, and we've talked about this on this podcast, is that the natural world is that it is natural. It is how we connect. It is part of us. And our removal from it, our denying of it, is denying something essential about ourselves. But the fact that this film allows these two little boys to go play in the woods, and it's kind of beautiful, and we're way more with them than we are with the mother, but they are essentially the antagonists of this film. It's a really complicated film to wrap your head around in terms of certainly, I think for Andrea and myself, your feelings about it, the way you handle it. I think for me, this film really made me realize the creature comforts I have. I love having a home. I love having a place I can go. I can be quiet. Quiet is something I'm very big on. You know, I bought a new eyeshadow palette today. I care about the way I look. I care about the way I'm perceived more so than I probably should. But it really breaks you down to those core and also superficial essentials in a way that can be awkward and not the type of shit we always want to admit, but it's there. Now, in doing research for this episode, there are so many theories about this film. And what was a bit disheartening to me was, in addition to people being like, I saw the twist coming a mile away because I am such a superior cinemaphile and I figured the movie out, ergo, the movie didn't fool me, ergo, I win. There was a lot of that mentality, which I found really demoralizing. But I also saw a lot of Goodnight Mommy Explained and people who thought that they had all the answers. Well, what about this? Well, this means this, and this happened because this and this and that. And one of the things I loved about this film, I think I mentioned before that upon the rewatch, I was pulling more and more out. One piece would inform another, and it would all make sense in a different way. But ultimately, especially as regards the final scene, how you interpret this is up to you. And if you are a critical horror fan, and I think you are if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to pick the finale that scares the shit out of you. You're going to pick the one that makes you think and makes you uncomfortable and makes you never, ever forget this film. So I hope nobody's listening to this in the hopes that we are going to explain what that sequence in the woods meant or what's up with the cat or why they're keeping hissing beetles. I mean, I have my own pet theories. A lot of them are kind of undeveloped, but it's not a mystery that I want to lift the veil on. No, for me, the closest I can get and the closest thing I would want to share with you guys, because again, that's one of the reasons why I love horror so much. Even when I meet new people and I say, well, a lot of my life is about horror movies and they will say, I hate horror movies, but then talk about horror movies to me for a good 10, 15 minutes. And in this film, what really illuminated something for me on the rewatch is the film opens with this, I don't know, 1950s, 1960s, like German Austrian television thing of the kids singing a song with the parents and the mother and it's very weird it's very very euro Guten Abend, guten Abend. 
there's a line that they sing, and it's subtitled at the bottom that says, "Your dreams are over, and it's quiet." And I was like, "Fuck, this movie is about one thing. It's that the mother's dreams have finally ended. Her dream, I assume, of being more famous, getting back to her career, getting her face back, getting her figure back. It's all over, and it's finally quiet. It's the quiet that she wanted. It's this weird catch twenty-two thing. It felt so on the nose, but so disconcerting. And I will also say this: my friend, who I mentioned before, who is pregnant, she is also very blonde and tall and thin, and she is Austrian." And I was hanging out with her and her husband, and looking at that bump in her stomach, being like, "I'm watching you." I think that idea of awakening from a fairy tale is actually very true. And of course, anything involving children like this, I think both children in both movies have a real journey from their innocence, maybe to excessive dramatic effect. But I feel like Amelia from the Babadook wasn't the only one who had a fairy tale nuclear family in her head. I feel like Elias, having dealt with, or I guess not dealt with, the loss of Lucas and seeing his mother kind of rebound. She's going on dating sites, and she's fixing up her face, and she's wearing these ludicrous high heels to do housework. And this isn't what mommy's supposed to be. Mommy's supposed to be like what we saw on the television. That's mommy. She is supposed to lay her life on the line for me. She's supposed to live for me and be all about me. And so when this mommy is not, she's perceived as evil until we finally see things through her eyes. Well, even to the point when they ask her where her mole on her face is, and she says the doctors decided to take it off, and I wore like eyeliner so not to freak you out. That was her doing something for herself so that she maybe didn't get cancer of the face and die. And both of these films, you are with the monster essentially for the first, you know, two thirds of the film, and it's only in the final third that it's fully revealed that it's actually the opposite way around. The Babadook is not this effervescent supernatural monster; it has an element of that, but it's very much embedded in Amelia and in Goodnight Mommy. These boys are not these terrorized figures; they are the terrorists. So one of the big pieces of theory that we wanted to enter into the conversation in regards to both of these films is the idea of the monstrous feminine, which was really honed by a scholar and theorist named Barbara Creed. She posits that women have become quote constructed as biological freaks whose bodies represent a fearful and threatening form of sexuality. This essentially has to do a lot with the kind of Freudian fear of lack of phallus, therefore a fear of castration, and we can also go into the fear of abject horror and the fear of something that is horrific within us that we can't live without. So you know we can get into a theoretical discussion of, as we've already mentioned, to be a woman is to want to be a mother. And is that complicated? That's something, you know, Andrea and I and most women out there have the ability to do. We could procreate given the right guy at the right moment. But it is something that's kind of horrifying and complicated and weird for us. And a lot of the theories of objection and horror have to do with Julie Kristeva, who's one of the main writers on this, uses the theory of death. So we have to acknowledge death in order to survive and to keep going forward. But it's something that grows ever closer to us the same way that we pee and poop. These are all things that keep us going. These are things that tell us our body is healthy and good and working. But these are things that we constantly try to shed as quickly as possible and get rid of and never talk about. I mean, God, don't even get them started on menstruation, and you're just like, oh no, oh God, it's all coming out. But never talk about it. 
Now, one more thing I'd like to bring up about these films before we wrap up is the idea that it's no coincidence that these are moms dealing with difficult boys. And I feel like there is a parent-child relation that's entangled with gender. Both these movies are about mom and son, and I feel like there is an implication that this gender divide does serve to isolate them further. Like, how different would these movies be if these were little girls? It would be understood that they would simply comfort one another in the nurturing way they both know. But how does a woman know how to comfort a little boy? And how does a little boy know how to seek proper comfort from their mom in a way that's not, you know, smothering them and interrupting them when they're trying to get off? And so this brought me to Oedipus, which I think we've talked about on the podcast a little bit in the past, but I wanted to get into it a little bit deeper today with regard to these films. As the myth goes, Oedipus was born to King Laius and Queen Jocasta, and Laius heard a prophecy that his son would kill him and marry his wife, so he abandoned the child. And sure enough, all that wound up happening anyway because prophecies, am I right? Anyway, Freud took that myth and he made it all weird with the Oedipus complex, which basically posits that every child has an unconscious desire to have sex with their parent of the opposite sex. So classic psychoanalytical theory kept that portion of Freud's bullshit, and it speculates that it's because you look up to your parent of the same sex and you want to emulate them in maturity. And so boys experience this as castration anxiety, you know, where your jealous dad is going to cut off your dick for looking at his woman, right? And for girls, it's penis envy. Jealous mom must have cut off your penis because you've been looking square at her husband. And you grow out of it unless it's a fixation. And there might be psychoanalytic listeners out there who are going to tell me that I'm reducing this to its bare stupidity. And, and I am because that's what I'm reading. I'm a sociologist and there are times when sociology is at odds with psychiatry. And this is kind of one of those things where the gender divide, I'm very much on the side of environment as opposed to nature. And I think the idea of your jealous mom cutting off your penis is ridiculous. Yeah, I came up against this stuff with Monstrous Feminine. It does have to do a lot with Freudian theory. And the idea that someone freaks out because I don't have a dick is just so reductive. It prevents any further conversation. And I don't know if I buy that. I don't think I do. But it is part of our history in the ways we get to thinking, analyzing, all of that stuff. I think men are more obsessed with their dicks than women are. Thank you very much. But as Alex was saying, even today, there is just so much junk science out there based on this crap that's really reductive and sexist. I still see essays about how a son and dad might feel a rivalry for mom's affection. It's really weird, but it does serve to inform some of what we see in movies with regard to these parent-child relations in gender. I mean, in Babadook, we've got Sam who wants to attack and kill his pain. He's developing weapons while she's burying her feelings in the basement. Meanwhile, Amelia feels smothered by Sam's wanting to protect her. And Sam is six years old. 
So it's almost weird to think that he's already having these pressures of I have to be man of the house. There has to be someone here protecting mom because she's somehow weak when she's your primary caregiver. She is your sun, moon, and stars. She puts clothes on your back. She puts food on the table. And even when she's being fucked up, granted, Sam has to step up to the plate. But I felt like he was fiercely protective of his poor manless mom. And if traditional gender roles are reinforced by the mom, a son will develop these habits, whereas a daughter would be more expected to help with the chores, etc. I'd also like to bring up that the mom-son relationship doesn't carry the same incest pervy stigma that might prevent an affectionate father-daughter relationship. And I do feel, based on what I see in film, that moms tend to be harder on girls to make them tough enough to take care of men like they did. And conversely, they'll be softer on boys because of the assumption that they'll find a woman tough enough to take care of them like mommy did. And this is something that's reflected not only in movies about moms and young boys, but in movies later about a sense of rivalry that we see in movies of the evil domineering mother-in-law, the mommy's boy husband who can't seem to choose between his old mommy and his new mommy. And so these all have their roots in the Oedipus complex, which is really interesting in these films. So to wrap up the discussion or begin to on both of these films, I have to say one of the things I came away from with both of them watching them almost back to back, I felt that The Babadook is a wholly more idealistic and hopeful film than Goodnight Mommy is. Obviously, the endings are so different. But in a way, there is something really dark and weird to me about the Babadook. So at the end of the Babadook, Amelia accepts her role and you know what? She's going to do her best and she might fuck up, but she's kind of got it under control. She knows the Babadook, whatever that represents to you or her, has to go live in the basement. She has to feed it. She has to deal with it. It's not gone, but she's going to do her best to be the best mom she can to Samuel. And to me, that feels really sad and weird and fucked up. And she seemed to have all these desires before in the film. And are those gone? Are those still there? Is it problematized? Is this some systemic thing where she realized, I just have to let go of those things I want? You know, I'd love to believe that when she gets herself back on track, she's going to start writing again and she's going to go on to have this amazing life for herself. But at the end of the film, it seems that her and Sam can only function when they're dependent on each other. Now, for me, Goodnight Mommy is really this horrifying, tragic tale about a woman trying to find herself after motherhood, after years of being a mother. A tragedy happens, and her marriage falls apart, and she decides, okay, I'm going to switch up those things that were bugging me about my face. I'm going to reinvest myself in my career. I'm going to find a new man, and I'm going to get back to being a mom. It's not going to be right away, but I'm going to try. And she's literally tortured for doing all of these things. She leaves for, I don't know, maybe a week or so to get the plastic surgery, comes back, and her boys have gone off the deep end. It's so sad and it's so scary to me that she couldn't be herself. She couldn't have herself. It's truly chilling. And that's one of the things that scares me most about the idea of becoming a parent. And I know people say, yes, you give up yourself, but you gain so much more, as we've already mentioned. And I'm sure that's true. I believe that when parents tell that to me. But for me, it just seems like... I don't know. I don't want to stop doing the podcast. I don't want to stop doing all this stuff. But it's hard for me to imagine a family or children that would be supportive of me, you know, going off and doing this with Auntie Andrea once a month. 
Now, that was really interesting because I actually had pretty different conclusive readings about these films on a whole. I mean, Goodnight Mommy, absolutely. It's a tragedy through and through. The ending is as bleak as an ending could be. I've read competing theories about whether or not Elias survived. I don't know why those conversations are happening because I really feel like it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the snapshot of the three of them in the field, a field which we saw burned earlier in the film, no less, is very much a fantasy of the family reunited in the fucked up fantasy way that they are. And by contrast, I felt like the Babadook decided to take a very realistic stance in the ending. And the entire time I was watching the film, I was like, okay, this is about depression. This is about grief. Duh. And I was really worried that it was going to resolve into a happy, beautiful picture of her, like I said, remarried, maybe with that guy Robbie and the trifecta of mommy and daddy and son is going to be perfectly restored and everything is going to be perfect. And I was really worried about that because that would have turned me off this film entirely. However, the metaphor of having the Duke in the basement and something that she needs to feed, and I thought it was especially moving when Sam was like, how was it today? How was it? It's quiet today. To me, that just communicated that this is something that she's going to have to fight for the rest of her life. It's never going to go away completely. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. But Sam's going to be there for her. And, you know, as somebody who has experienced depression, I'm sure lots of our listeners experience depression. I think an overwhelming majority of people without being properly diagnosed have been there. And they know that you have to tread lightly after that. You have to know what your triggers are. You have to take care of yourself and get your rest. And sometimes you have to tell that negative voice in your head to fuck right off. And it's work. It's ongoing work. And I thought that was so realistic that it was actually really comforting. But we want to hear from you. We want to hear what you think. These films were oddly controversial. And there's a lot of different readings. And I'm really excited about the discussions that are going to ensue. If you haven't visited our subreddit lately, there have been some really interesting chats about a Buffy the Vampire Slayer theory that somebody posited. And people are speaking up about that. And somebody actually started up a thread about future episode suggestions, which, of course, we're always welcome to your input. A lot of people email us or comment on our episode pages, but that's maybe another avenue if you'd like to add it in there. Because we do take down all of these and we keep them in mind and we will get to them as soon as we can. Speaking of your suggestions, last month we asked and you guys answered. You answered a whole bunch. It was so cool to see that there are over 80 some odd comments on that post on our website for Blood in Four Colors. So by now those winners have been notified and they will have a beautiful brand spanking new copy of Blood in Four Colors, the new Rue Morgue book on their way to them to enjoy and read and pass down through your family for many years to come. And we asked, so we're going to do a graphic novel horror movie episode in April, which is next month. What would you like to see? And the overwhelming answer, maybe it's because of the way I say heartnet, is 30 days of night. Then we had a ton of really cool runner-ups. We had a lot of Hellboy. We had some Blade. We had uh, quite a bit of Creep Show. We had From Hell a lot. And the thing about all of those follow-ups was 
I think we're going to turn those into their own episodes. They're going to pop up in different ways over the coming year or so because Andrea and I talking amongst ourselves felt very strongly about a lot of the topics. So we're going to do 30 Days of Night and we're going to take one of the other runner-ups, which is The Crow. So your homework for next month, watch 30 Days of Night, watch The Crow, same bad time, same bad channel. That's right. And I hope we make it clear that when we choose the films that we want to talk about, we're not just cherry picking our favorite films. Indeed, even tonight, Alex isn't especially fond of The Babadook. And it's something that we've discussed at length, that it's just something that didn't reach her on a certain level, but we still had Or any level at all. There was still so much to unpack, and it just went so nicely with Goodnight Mommy, which we both loved very much, that we put them together. So... When it comes to From Hell, we feel like there's a Jack the Ripper episode in store maybe in the future. When it comes to Creepshow, uh, maybe we should do horror anthologies. So your answers have not gone to waste. If we didn't choose them, they will reemerge. We just have to pack these things into nice little packages that we can put a great big bow on for you to unwrap. Before we end on this episode, we wanted to wish a very, very happy birthday to a listener named Terry Lynn. You've got a very cool husband who reached out to us to do this, and we hope you're having a really great day whenever your birthday is, whenever you hear this, and, you don't know, maybe watch Rosemary's Baby or Sleepaway Camp, something fun. Take some you time. Happy birthday, Terry Lynn, and until next time. Office hours are closed. <laughs> Can you keep them in the dark for a while? Can you have them?